Amen. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke or scroll to Luke. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers will give one to you. You just got to put your hand up and let them know that you need one. So Deb told you, my name is Marvin. I served here for a long time, and it's nice to be able to come home and to kind of hang out with you guys and maybe take some food as I leave on the way out. I know there's a kitchen here. Um, And uh, it's just a huge privilege to to come and to serve you in this way. And uh, we're going to be going, uh, talking uh, in Luke 1, verses 1 to 25. And uh, you'll notice here that uh, this graphic isn't really your church's graphic. It's actually T North graphic. We're lending that to you. There's a small fee. Chris has promised to pay me that later. So we're doing a series at T North called A Beautiful Narrative, and we're just going through the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is my favorite gospel, and uh, we're just going to take our time through that. It's actually going to take th- three years for us to get through Luke, I think. So if I ever get invited back here, you should expect a sermon from Luke, okay? Because that's what's going to be going on. And so I just want to give you, though, an overview of Luke because we're going to go through these verses just so you're aware of, you know, sort of what's happening with it. And so the Gospel of Luke is a two-part book. It's actually part one, and Acts is part two. So it's a two-part book, and it's written to a person named Theophilus. Nobody really knows uh, who this guy is. I think he's got a really cool name, Um, but it's written to him, and uh, they think he may have been kind of high up in sort of some kind of political office of some sort. And uh, Luke's gospel highlights the beauty of racial diversity in God's plan of salvation. When you read Luke, when you read Acts, you get this sense that God is really rescuing people from all nations, tribes, and tongue. Uh, Luke shows us most clearly how Jesus lived in a world that does not understand God. And uh, here are some major themes in Luke. Uh, you'll see God's redemptive plans. You, kinda, you can look at those verses and just kind of see and get a big picture of what God is doing. And then there's this theme of Jesus as our Savior, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. There's also the theme of the Holy Spirit. Luke talks a ton about the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our life and his importance uh, for, to the life of the Christian Then there's also a big theme of prayer. Luke is called the theologian of prayer. He talks a ton about prayer and its importance and and why we need to engage in it and how it's a gift from God to us. There's also a a big theme of the marginalized. When you read Luke, you'll get this clear picture that he cares about the poor and wants us to care about the poor and to help them. There's also a a, a theme of women in, in Luke's writings and their importance to the ministry of Jesus and the importance of women to the ministry of the overall church, that they're vital to the thing that God is doing in the world. And then there's also this theme of promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment, that what God said in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the New Testament. And I put that one there because that theme is most prominent in our passage today. That God has made these promises and that he is, he is actively working and be beginning to fulfill those promises. Here's the, here's the thing, the main thing I want us to have in our minds from this message. It's that God expects us to take him at his word. God, when he says something, expects his children, his people, those who are following him, to take him at 
his word, to not doubt anything that he has said. And this, this passage is going to show us that we can and should trust the promises of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so in those verses, Luke tells us four things about how his gospel came together, and then he tells us why he wrote it. First, he says he investigated it. He looked into the details. And then he says that he started from the beginning. That's why we have the, the story of John's birth, because Luke goes all the way back and starts from the very beginning. And he says, I checked everything. He went through all of the details. That's why the, the series we, we're saying, it's Luke's detailed account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He goes through everything. And then he worked carefully. That he, he didn't just kind of throw whatever in there, that he actually thought through and put in the things that were, that were important. See, Luke wants us to know that he's a good historian. That he put in the work, that under the direction of the Holy Spirit, everything that needs to be there is there, and that we can trust what is about to come. Now, everything is not in chronological order, but all the important details are all there, and we can trust what he is about to say about Jesus Christ. So when you, when you look at the Gospel of Luke, you've got to think about that. When you go from chapter 1 to 24, you need to know. Luke's saying, you can trust the details here. You can be certain. That's why he wrote it. Look at verse 4. It says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He says, Theophilus, you can be certain. He says, Marv, what you have heard, you can be certain about when it comes to Jesus Christ. Now think about this. We live in a world where it's hard to be certain about a lot of things. Just think of Kanye West. Right, my pop culture people who know what's going on. We see, we see, we see Yeezy and we're like, I think he's on the team. The album's okay. But we, but we watch him do interviews, we watch him talk, and we think, it looks real. But then we're like, I don't. And we're, we are called to trust people's profession of faith. Let's just say that and leave that there. And let God sort out the details. Time will tell on those things. But it's hard for us sometimes to know and be certain about certain things. But Luke says here, Theophilus, Christian, you can be certain about the things that you read and hear about Jesus Christ. He wants us to know we can trust what God has said. Look at, look at verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest of the... Uh, named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So Luke here gives us the political context. He says Herod is king. Herod is ruling. Now Herod is a, was a tyrant. He was an oppressor of the people of Israel. He, he used the temple and the priesthood all for his own political purposes. And it's in these troubled, oppressive times that we are told and introduced uh, to Elizabeth and Zechariah, who Luke says are from the priestly line of, of Aaron. But these two people are dealing with disappointment. Did you catch it? Do you know where it is? Look at verse 7. It says, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now there's all kinds of suffering wrapped up in that verse. No child advanced in years dealing with real disappointment. Here's point number one. Suffering will happen. Guard your thoughts. Suffering will happen. And so we are to guard our thinking. This would have been very difficult for this couple. Just think about this. They would have had to deal with prying questions. Elizabeth, you guys have been married a long time. What's going on? They would have had to work through insensitive remarks to people who, are, who aren't aware and paying attention to when somebody is suffering and they don't need just your, you know, your, your Christian platitudes. They would have to deal with those insensitive remarks. They may have even doubted the goodness of God. Why is God doing this or allowing this? And in that culture, the people thought they were being punished. Kent Hughes says, in any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment. And for some, an almost unbearable stress. But the burden cannot be compared to that borne by a childless woman in ancient Hebrew culture because barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. Now you hear that and you're like, why would they think it was a punishment? So we get the struggle, we get the pain, but why would people think that this was a punishment? Well, Deuteronomy says this. It says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. The people in the culture, when they looked at Elizabeth and Zechariah, they would have thought this was happening. And they would, have, they would have probably thought, there's probably something going on in your life that you just, you're just not aware of or you're not admitting. Like, think about, remember Job's friends? The worst friends in the Bible of all time. They roll up on your boy and they're like, Job, you've done something. One of Job's friends, terrible friend, says, you deserve worse. Who would kick it with that guy? Because in that culture, suffering was viewed as something must be going on. You must have done something for God to be allowing this and doing this to you. But notice, Luke gives us a very key detail. See, they haven't done anything wrong. Look at verse 6. 
It says, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They're not, he's not saying they were perfect. But what he's saying is that they worked hard, that their life conformed to the will of God, both ethically and spiritually. And so they're not being punished for some sin that they don't know about. And that verse is actually meant to help us. It's meant to help us because sometimes when suffering hits, we go wrong in our thinking. And we start to think, maybe God's upset with me. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I just, I gotta, I gotta figure it out. I've gotta comb through and find it. Maybe he's getting back at me for some old thing that I did in the past. We go wrong in our thinking. See, sometimes we suffer and it has nothing to do with our sin. We suffer sometimes because we're just doing the right thing. I think that is going to be a growing reality for Christians in our culture. That as we commit to do what is right, as we refuse to affirm the things that are being pushed on us, as we stand for what is true, I think we are going to suffer for doing what is right. Sometimes the struggle is, is because of that. And there are other times where we suffer uh, because of the sins of other people. You think about a, a wife who is being faithful, doing her best to, to bring her kids up in the instruction of the Lord, but she's married to a tyrant who attacks her for her faith. Sometimes we suffer because of the sins of other people, and then other times we suffer just because we live in a world that is broken, that deeply needs to be renewed by God. And Satan, when you, when suffering hits, the thing he wants is to go after our minds. He wants us to think the wrong way about ourselves. He wants us to think the wrong ways about God. All to get us to doubt. See, God does not punish his children, he works through the brokenness in the world to mature them and make them like Jesus Christ. And the thing we've got to do when that thing rolls up on your doorstep is guard your thinking to think rightly about God and who he is and what he means in our life and the way he actually works. We guard our thinking. He does not punish his Children, he works to mature them and make them like his son. And that's his goal for us, to mature us and make us like Christ. Now, one of the things that really marked the life of Jesus Christ was prayer. And one of the things that should mark the life of a disciple is prayer. But doesn't it feel like God takes long sometimes to answer Doesn't it feel frustrating sometimes? Like, why isn't he answering? Why isn't he helping me? What's going on? We, we, we feel that frustration. We have those questions. And Luke speaks to that. Look at verse 8. It says, now while he was serving as priest, he's talking about Zechariah, before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Point number two is this. Prayer is heard. Trust God's timing. Prayer is heard. We are to trust God's timing for the answer. So Luke tells us here that, that Zechariah is ministering at the temple. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There were 18,000 priests in 24 divisions, and they served at the temple for two weeks on this rotating basis. And then he's chosen to serve in the most holy place. This is a, ma- this is a massive privilege. And when you, you see verse 9, which says that he was chosen by lot, you think this is all happening by chance, but it isn't. Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What Luke is doing here is he's saying, this is not chance. This is God actively working, fully in control of everything. And, And then think about that for your life. What's that thing that's got you, that feels so random to you, that feels so out of nowhere? It's not by chance. That, that's God providentially guiding all of the details and days of your life. Nothing happens by chance. It's God is fully in control, guiding the ship. See, Zechariah is right where God wants him. And that's where the angel meets him. And it says that when the angel shows up, verse 12 says, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, if you're talking to a Jamaican, what they would say is, when the angel showed up, they'd say, mm-mm, I'm frightened. <laughs> he's shook. He's like a four-year-old at a haunted house. He's like, <clears throat> He's full of fear. But the angel calms him. He says, your prayer has been heard. God has heard you, and you are going to have a son. His name will be John. Now, John, his name means God is gracious. See, we may have to wait long for God to answer our prayer. But when he answers, it's always Always him being gracious to us. Now catch this. Even when he says no. And that's the part that's hard for us. To believe that when God looks and says no, to still trust, again, that he is being gracious. And we have to, we have to protect our thinking in these things, that even when God says no, it's always an act of grace because God knows more than we do. God sees around the bend. He has all of the details. We have some details. And sometimes he looks and he says, another preacher said it this way, he says, God answers your prayer saying, I'm, it's going to come to me, saying, if you knew What I knew, you would have asked for this. He says, if you had the details that I have, you would have asked for this. And so I'm giving you the thing that you need. God knows best. 
He has all the details and he calls us to trust him with his timing. And so even, yes, if we've got to wait long, it's always an act of grace, even when he doesn't give us what we want. And we've got to trust. That's good thinking. Zechariah prayed for a son, but as a priest, he also prayed for his nation. That phrase, the incense was going up, would have been a sign to the people that he was doing that. It was, it was a sign of prayer. He prayed and the people also prayed. Look at verse 10. It says, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And you're like, why are they praying? They're praying because they want God to rescue them. They're praying because they're under oppression. And God promised that he would rescue them. And so they're asking him, do the thing you promised. And what's going on here is that God is actually beginning to start that work of rescue. The description of John that is going to come tells us that God is working and that he's actually answering two prayers at once. That he's answering the prayers of this desperate couple, but he's also answering the prayers of a desperate people. See, you and I sometimes fall into this belief that we are good at multitasking. That's why people text and drive. That's why I text and drive, which is illegal. <laughs> Confession, you know? <laughs> we are not good at multitasking. But we fall into that, we fall into that belief. But God, God is good at multitasking because he has all the power. And here we see him doing this multitasking thing, answering two prayers at once. Look at verse 14, it says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. This is talking about John. For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children and to disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So they're going to have this son. And he says he's going to bring joy and gladness. That is the effect he's going to have on people. The angel talks about his demeanor. He says, he will be great. He says, Zachariah, your son, John, he's going to be great, not in what he accomplishes, but in his obedience to the will of God for his life. He's going to be great in three ways it's measured. It's measured by a disciplined life. He says that he must not drink strong drink. And so he's, he's got to have this discipline about him and will have that. And then it says that he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. This speaks to this prophetic ministry that John is going to have as he gets people ready for Jesus, all under the control and power of the Holy Spirit. And then it says that he will call people back to God like Elijah. Look at verse 16. It says, and he will, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, to understand those verses, you have to look backwards. 
you got to go backwards. you got to go back all the way to Malachi. And in Malachi 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. There's this massive promise here. See, 400 years the people have been waiting for this. This has been told to them. And they've been waiting 400 years for God to fulfill that promise. And they're praying and they're asking and they're longing for it to happen. And now God is beginning to answer that prayer. John will have this ministry where he gets people ready for Jesus. But notice too that his ministry will lead to healing in families. You see it? In verse 17, Luke says that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. In that verse, Luke reminds us of what some of us really know, that families break. That brokenness in families are real. That when some people are like, I'm so excited about Christmas, I'm, I'm looking forward to the dinners, that there are some people who are like, I don't want to see anybody in my family. Because there's a true reality that in a world that is broken by sin, that fathers turn away from their children. That the ones who have been entrusted by God to be responsible walk away from their responsibility. That is a true reality in our world. And that this is an exciting time for some people, but for some people this is a terrible time because it reminds them of the pain of that reality. I grew up watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And one of the episodes that I've never forgotten, never, as a person who grew up without their dad, is Will, father, comes in and out of his life. And the episode is building and building and building, and it finally builds to the spot where he just, he, Will just asked the question, why doesn't he want me? And there's this reality that we, we live with of this, we feel like something's wrong. He says, why doesn't he want me? There's a true reality of brokenness in families, but don't miss the hope here. That the gospel reconciles us to God, that is true, but the gospel also reconciles us to one another. And if you want that brokenness that is there healed, what you are to do is pray and ask for those who aren't trusting in Christ to come to Christ. And for those who are trusting in Christ to start behaving properly like Christians are supposed to, so that healing and hope that is promised in the word begins to happen because it's there. That broken families can be Restored in Jesus Christ. See, John, his ministry will lead, lead to the, the coming of Jesus. It'll move from John to Jesus and then from Jesus to the redemption as he dies in our place, which ultimately leads to this open door and an open reality of restoration in families. The gospel gives broken families hope. And John, in this announcement, this process is beginning and starting that fathers can turn 
and children can turn to their parents. Where there's, where there's chaos, there can become peace. Zechariah prayed for a son, and God gave him a prophet. See, what you have here is this reminder that God is doing something much bigger than this couple. That God is at work in bigger ways than they can realize. And again, we've got to keep that in mind when we pray. Because sometimes when we go to prayer, we think, it's all about me. And that God has given me this gift of prayer to meet all of my needs and to do whatever I want. But we've got to remember that in our praying that there is something much bigger going on than us. That God is working and that he is going to answer our prayer according to his wise timing and according to what fits with his plan. The thing that he is doing. Ephesians says this. It says, in him we have Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You're like, what's God doing? He's doing that. He is working for the restoration of of the world. He is rescuing and saving people. He is working a very big plan. And so we have to trust his timing. All of our prayers are answered in light of that plan. Do you think about prayer that way? That all of, that when you pray, it's always going to be answered in light of that plan, that God is doing something. That plan, we are going to benefit. We are never going to lose in that plan as we trust the Lord. Now, trust isn't easy for us. Trust does not come easy. We go in and out of doubt all the time. I was flying home on Air Canada from university one year, and the the pilot said, we are close to Toronto. We are going to land soon. Okay. I mean, I've never met the guy, so just going to trust what he says. So we're flying, and then the plane goes like this. Yeah, you like that? And I went, whoa! Because I'm like, this baby is going down. Like, there is no chance we are going to make it. Whoa! I almost said out loud, I don't think we're going to make it. I didn't say that. And it was like sideways for a good couple minutes. Like I wanted to take the seatbelt off and just, do you want me to try to fix the thing? And in that moment, I had, I don't care where we were at. We were close to the airport, fine. I'm like, we are not going to make, doubt was all, I was in and I got on the plane believing. And, but then doubt, not trusting. We struggle with Doubt. God understands that about us, but he wants us to be confident when it comes to him and his word. Look at verse 18. It says, And Zechariah said to the, the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Notice that statement. He's like, how am I supposed to know this? He's like, bro, you're standing in front of an angel. It's not like it's Rick from next door. I stand in the presence of God. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Here's point number three, our final point. Unbelief is dangerous. Remember its consequences. It's dangerous. The angel says, you are going to have a son. But Zechariah is full of doubt. Like we are, he goes in and out. He says, how shall I know this? Another translation gets it even more clear. He says, on what basis will I know this? But Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. What I'm bringing to you is from the throne room of of heaven. You are to believe and trust and listen. What you have here is a statement of authority in in front of human doubt. God was answering his prayer, but notice, he stopped believing. He had stopped believing. He was praying and doubting. He had given up. See, his moment of unbelief, do you know what it does? It it, it does a couple things, but here's one of the things it does. It reminds us that spiritual leaders aren't immune to doubt. He was their priest. I mean, old boy went into the temple saying, we're, like, we're, I'm going to pray. We trust. Spiritual leaders aren't immune to doubt. We sometimes say to people, trust God. Trust God. Put all your faith in him. He is good. And then walk out of the meeting going, I don't know if I trust God. That is a very real reality. See, spiritual leaders have not arrived. And that's why, as a church, we're not called, we don't worship spiritual leaders. We pray for them. Because spiritual leaders need Jesus just as much as everybody else. Because the reality is, is doubt is real for all of us. We go in and out of belief. And so we don't worship those who God has given the privilege of serving us in a spiritual way. We pray for them. Because no spiritual leader has arrived. See, Zechariah looked at his old age, his old wife, and he couldn't believe by faith that God could do it. His biology was right, and his theology is all a mess. His theology is all wrong. And taking the consequences, verse 20. It says, and behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the, the days that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. You hear that? Which will be fulfilled. In their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. The people were like, What's taking him so long? The priest usually didn't go in for a long time. You went in and you came out. If you were in long, it means something went wrong. He couldn't even give, when he comes out, he couldn't even give the customary blessing that the priest is supposed to give. He is mute and he's also deaf. Look at verse 62. It says, 
this is when John's born, it says, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He is deaf and all mute deaf, it says, because he did not believe the words which will be fulfilled in their time. Unbelief has consequences. And we live in a world where unbelief is the norm. There are even people trying to get you not to believe. There are people working for us to doubt the word of God. Unbelief is the We are the weird ones for believing. Doubt is the norm, and people are working to get us not to believe. James Smith says, from Richard Dawkins to Steve Pinker, the, the priests of enlightenment are prophets of overreach, promising a status more than an adequate explanation, and we buy in, less because the system works intellectually. We often don't even expend the energy to confirm the evidence, and we suppress lingering questions. And more because it comes with an allurement of illumination and sophistication with the added benefit of throwing off the naivete of simplistic faith. What their knowledge offers is a shortcut to respectability. See, unbelief makes some people feel real sophisticated. Unbelief makes some people even feel like they're grown. I'm mature. I'm not into that fairy tale business. But unbelief is dangerous. Unbelief has very real consequences real consequences. The Christian may never be punished for their sin because it's all poured out on Jesus Christ. But when we, when we drift, and all sin starts with unbelief, when we drift into unbelief and go into that sin, we may never be punished for that because it's all on Christ, but we will have to live with the consequences that come from that sin. The parent who's harsh and rough with their children, yes, they can be forgiven for that sin, but they may have to live with the consequences of kids who don't want to be near them. Unbelief is dangerous. The unbeliever who chooses never to, to come across that line and trust in Jesus Christ will have to live with the consequence of being, spending eternity apart from God in hell being punished for their sin. And I don't say that to be harsh. I say that because... It's a very real place. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. Unbelief has very real consequences. And we, we are being told here by Luke how Zechariah responds so that we would never respond that way to the word of God. That we would trust God, that we would take him at his word. The consequences are real. Zechariah doubted, but God kept his word. Look at verse 24. It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. Just very simply, Elizabeth conceived. No fanfare, just, just a, a one statement of God's faithfulness. He made a promise, and the promise is fulfilled. She conceived. He wants us to take him 
and trust his word. And notice she says that he has taken away my reproach from among the people. Now that word reproach, it refers to the lie that Elizabeth culture told her, which was that her worth as a wife and woman came from what she had and what she could do. That's the reproach she felt. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because that lie is still being told today. This lie that our worth and our value comes from what we can do and what we have. If you've ever wondered why so many people are depressed, why so many people are in debt, why so many people are overworked, is because so many people have bought into this lie that my value lies in what I have and what I can do. And that is a lie. The Bible says that our value and our worth comes not from what we have and what we can do. It comes from who God says we are, his children, his beloved, those who no one can snatch from his hand. That is where our value and our worth comes from. And some of us get up every day and we feel so, we feel so devalued because we look at our life and I'm like, I don't have that thing that I think I should have. But you have your salvation. You have the love of a father. You have a restored relationship. Your value and worth comes from that reality. And unbelief, there's, that, there's a temptation to believe that our value and worth comes from something else rather than who God says we are. Elizabeth is grateful, but her understanding is limited. She thinks that God is just primarily vindicating her. Notice, she says, what God has done for me, that God has looked on me, that God has taken away mine. It's all her. She's focused on herself. And suffering does that. It makes our, our view limited, makes us think only about ourselves. But she can't see that God is doing something much bigger than her, that God is starting a process, that he is working a, a massive redemptive plan, not just for her, but for all of us. See, it's true that God took away her reproach, but it was just the beginning. It's true that he does, he does something very special for her, but it was just the beginning. He took away her reproach, but he took away our reproach as well. Do you know that? That there was a very real time in our life where we were full of reproach. That the only thing above us was reproach because of our sin. That our life was full of disgrace. But listen to your reality now and my reality. Colossians says that you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. That was what we used to be. Alienated and hostile towards God. Doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and, you say it. Let's try it again. In order to present you holy and blameless and above before him. Do you think like that? Do you think in Christ I am blameless? Do you think in Christ I will be presented above reproach 
See, so, so many people get up and the thing that they think is full of blame, full of shame, full of reproach. Bad thinking. The Bible says in Christ we are blameless, that this is our reality, and that he will present us above reproach before him, that we are going to be presented to our Father, clean in Christ. See, Elizabeth's story is actually our story. Think about her in the beginning. No child, barren, full of disgrace. Now at the end, with child, full of hope, restored. That is the reality of the Christian. At one time, nothing but shame, nothing but struggle, nothing but guilt. Now in Christ, free, clean, above reproach, blameless. That is who we are. And none of it has to do with the life we've lived. All of it has to do with the life lived by Jesus Christ for us and his death in our place. See, our disgrace has been swept away by grace. And Jesus Christ is going to present us. This is what's coming. Above reproach, before our Father who loves us enough to tell us these things. And he says, take me at my word. Trust what you hear and live by my word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, uh, who, when we are trusting in him, makes us blameless. Lord, that there is no more reproach on our lives. And Father, I pray for the person who maybe is feeling condemnation, feeling like they're full of reproach. I pray if they're in Christ that you would just, you would remove that thinking. And God, for the person who is who's suffering and struggling and wondering if, you, if you're punishing them or if there's something going on in their life that they don't see, I pray you'd help them to think rightly, Lord God, that you don't punish your children, that you work to grow us, to make us like Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us to trust your timing when it comes to prayer, to know that you are doing something much bigger than us, that you are working in ways that sometimes... So often we cannot see. And that in your good plan, Lord God, that we are going to benefit. I pray that we would trust you, God, that we would take you at your word. And that you would be glorified in our living. That we would live in such a way that people know that you are real, that they know we are trusting you and not doubting you. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.